Hey there, welcome to night school. You know, I've been staying up all night, the last three nights, I think it is. I have slept. No, I've gotten sleep, but uh, I've stayed up all night doing, you know, working on my website. I'm doing a redesign of that, which, you know, obviously I've been talking a lot about web design lately for some reason. This this is a web design audio blog. Welcome to my web design audio blog. Pretty much. No, but I've been staying up all night just, uh, you know, both working on code as well as compiling everything. It's a great experience. It's just insane. It's insane. I'm trying to collect, you know, as much work as I can, as much uh, art as I, I can from my adult life. But there's also a an aspect where like there's some old childhood art, some old uh, pictures of childhood drawings I did from when I was, you know, young, you know, five years old through, uh, you know, through eight, you know, not a ton. At some point, I'd like to, you know, make proper scans, but I just I just want to include a little glimpse into what I was doing as a kid, because I feel like that's important for for some reason. I feel it's important, you know, as someone who's dedicated my adult life to a certain style of drawing. I like to, I like for people to also see what I was doing. I mean, we're looking at stuff that was 30 years ago now. Uh, you know, we are looking at, uh, I'm talking about stuff. But, uh, and some of these pictures I've shared with people over the years, I've posted them on my social media or accounts, but I want to include them on my, my website. But anyway, one of them was Jake the Snake Roberts, who I was obsessed with. I went through a couple of years where I was just completely obsessed with Jake the Snake Roberts. And there's a drawing of him. And I was looking at it, you know, and I was like, huh, like I don't, you know, it's it, you look at stuff and you, like you think about cave drawings. Like you think about like when we find like these early etchings and these early carvings of primitive man. And we're like, I think he was going for this. Oh, clearly it's the shape of a woman. Clearly he was clearly this is like an early depiction of a a buxom woman. They were carving buxom women uh, into the cave walls. You know, we look at things like that from earlier times and we have these interpretations, but I mean it can be difficult to even understand your childhood art. Like in this Jake the Snake drawing, everything makes sense. Like there's there's the bag cuz he would come to the the wrestling ring with a bag. And he had a snake in it, a real live snake. And then he it would get out, and he would there people would try like other wrestlers. Like I, there was a a match that I still vividly remember watching as a kid, and I haven't seen it since. So my memory of this is pure, and I'm sure I could find it. But it was Jake the Snake Roberts versus Tatanka, who was this Native American wrestler, and. Uh, as part of the the match, Tatanka took the snake and put it in the bag, or the or the snake was already in the bag, and and Tatanka pretended to stomp the snake, and Jake was like wrapped up in the ropes and he, like so upset because he loved this snake. And as a kid, I was like, oh my god, you know, he's he's stomp-. like I knew pro wrestling was theatric, you know, I knew that like I had already been told like some some. Uh, cruel pro wrestling atheist had already tried to smash my dreams and tell me it was fake because that starts early like you can't even be into pro wrestling for a day as a five-year-old without somebody trying to like forcefully tell you it's pseudoscience oh do you know pro wrestling is pseudoscience 
You know, you can't even go a day in childhood without somebody doing that. But it didn't make a difference to me. And, like, I was, I still found it compelling. Like, because Jake the Snake, he looked legitimately upset when Tatanka was pretending to stomp the snake. But anyway, so there was the snake in the bag. And so the drawing of Jake the Snake, it has his bag next to him. And then the snake is in the corner of the drawing. And it looks like it's, like, on top of a block of wood. Like, it's stretched out, and it's not actually, like, on the block. I don't know what it is. I mean, I don't know why a block of wood would be at a pro wrestling event. But it looks to me like it's a block of wood, and the snake is, like, stretched out on it. It's hard to tell uh, what it is, but I can only imagine it's a block of wood. But what was really interesting about it is behind Jake the Snake, there's, like, a yellow uh, bar and and the bar like it kind of it goes down on each side it's like a straight line and then on each side there's like a, there's like a right angle and li- and like two short lines go down and then they seem to go into like what look like blocks they're also yellow and i was looking at that and i was like is that supposed to be the the ropes like was i trying to draw like the ropes but there's just one line and i realized i think that's actually the guardrail I was like, I think that that yellow line is actually supposed to be the guardrail that, you know, separates the audience from the action. Separates the audience from the action. Which makes sense. I don't know. Just That makes some odd sense that I would be depicting him. Like, it looks like he's outside of the ring. So it makes sense. But it's funny, like, interpreting your own childhood drawings because it really is like finding something archaic. It really is like finding something you know, from, from ancient times and trying to interpret it. The difference is you kind of figure, you can kind of figure it out. You can kind of understand that, okay, he's a pro wrestler. You know, he carried his snake to the ring. He would do things outside the ring with the snake. He would do things outside the ring with the snake. No, but he he would do things like that. So yeah, it's probably the guardrail. Maybe it's the ropes, but I think, I think I figured it out. I think it's the guardrail. And when my website is launched, you'll be able to see this drawing if you haven't seen it already. And Jake the Snake is interesting because he's such a compelling real-life figure. You know, the Beyond the Mat, I think it was called. Was it Beyond the Mat or Behind the Mat? Beyond. I think it was Beyond the Mat. Behind the Mat doesn't really make sense. Um, beyond the Mat was a documentary that came out kind of during the, that pro wrestling boom during the WWF Attitude Era. And it was mostly about Jake the Snake because, you know, he had been a crackhead. You know, he was the product of his his father was a wrestler and his father raped his girlfriend's daughter and got her pregnant. And she was a teenager and the child was Jake the Snake. So, I mean, that's just an insane story. And then he got into the pro wrestling business because his father was involved. And, and, you know, he had some not a not a close relationship to his father either which is strange it's interesting to like follow in your father's footsteps but but to not even be close to him and then to be the product of that to have been brought into the world under those circumstances is insane and so of course you know he developed all kinds of problems but always comes across and you know and was you know not involved in his kids lives but uh you know he got caught up in the decadence you know, of being a, a popular pro wrestler, which again, like I'm amazed that he was so popular because I think about him and I, I was a huge Jake the Snake fan and, and he was actually a wildly popular wrestler with kids. 
like it makes sense why Hulk Hogan like I remember like when I was a little kid my neighbor boy the neighbor boy who was a little bit younger than me we both had these yellow tank tops and they weren't like Hulk Hogan brand they weren't like WWF merch but they were these these like yellow tank tops and we would both wear those because we were so into Hulk Hogan, like these two little boys just walking around in yellow tank tops. Like I think they even they even said something on on the front, like of the brand, like I like they weren't actually Hulk Hogan tank tops. But it was just funny to me that we both wore those around because we liked Hulk Hogan so much, and we would wear them together. <laughs> like imagine doing that with your friends today. Like oh, we both have these matching tank tops we wear <laughs> we wear around. Girls do that, uh, but little boys do too when they love Hulk Hogan. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, like, so it, it makes sense why like Hulk Hogan kind of, I don't know. That's even Hulk Hogan's a weird one too. I mean, he's, he's like the Nike swoosh of pro wrestlers. You know, you just kind of take it for granted. But when you think about him, I mean, he was bald on top. He had this like bleached skullet with a mustache. He's not a particularly good looking guy. Like he's not, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to evaluate Hulk Hogan's, uh, face I don't I don't know how to I don't, maybe girls like it I don't know but he's got these like sunken in eyes there's there's something about his face that I don't know he's very unique looking uh but uh I don't know it, there's not like I guess he's he's so charismatic or he was so charismatic and he had the, such a larger than life personality but so did a bunch of other wrestlers and yeah he was ripped but it's just like I think like I don't understand that equation. I don't understand the exact equation, and I don't need to, because I think these things are just beyond... You can't explain it. You can't explain why Hulk Hogan became the phenomenon he did. But I still get it today. Like, it still makes sense to me why he was so popular. But if you were to break down the individual, like, components, like, if you were to analyze Hulk Hogan, it doesn't make any sense. Like, he, he always looked 40 years old. He was completely bald on top, which, you, you know, you think of like, uh, you know, doesn't usually, you know, with a man, like you don't think of someone really appealing to kids. Well, I like the guy who's completely bald on top with a skullet. Like little boys don't gravitate toward that. Yet Hulk Hogan, they did. Uh, but, you know, that's that's interesting enough. But Jake the Snake is another one where I'm just like, I don't know why he was so popular. And he was because I was thinking when I was looking at this Jake the Snake drawing, I was like, did I just think he was I obsessed with him or or what? Like, like, was it was that like a weird little thing that I that I was obsessed with? And then I realized, no, he was actually insanely popular with kids. I mean, all wrestling, all wrestling was at that time. It was before like the Attitude Era. So wrestling was kind of geared toward kids. But still, Jake the Snake was insanely popular. And he's another example where it's like he was kind of balding, I remember. Like, I think his hair was kind of thinning, and he had a mullet and a mustache. And he wasn't the most ripped guy. Like, he wasn't the most physically impressive-looking guy. I guess the snake appealed to people. Like, the idea that this, like, weird guy with a snake comes out. And, you know, he was very he was very great. Like, his, his in-ring presence was very interesting. That's what I'll say about Jake the Snake. I think there was something, like, while Hulk Hogan was, like, Hulk Hogan was pure charisma. Jake the Snake was just genuinely interesting. Like talking about him reacting to Tatanka stomping the snake. Like he captured something with that. Like his face would capture something and his wrestling style did as well. And as a kid, you're not analyzing that, but you're aware of it nonetheless. You know, you're aware of something interesting going on. And uh, with him though, yeah, he was actually 
widely popular because I actually remember they made a rubber snake that came in a bag modeled after Jake the Snake's bag. And it was branded. It said it had like a logo on it that said Jake the Snake Roberts. So the WWF actually made merchandise. They The WWF made a rubber snake that kids could buy with a bag, you know, a Jake the Snake bag. And I might have, I think I had it actually. I think I had that snake because I had this rubber snake and like I, my memory of that, the Jake the Snake bag is so vivid. I feel like I had to have had it around. So I had it because I was obsessed with Jake the Snake. And uh, that's amazing to me, though, that like they even he was so popular that they made a rubber snake with a branded bag with his name on it. And speaking of that neighbor boy, like my my tank top buddy. Oh, it's my tank top buddy. Uh, Speaking of him, he, of course, was also really into Jake the Snake because I was because he was a year younger than I was. And at that age, you know, that's big. Like a year is, is big when you're five years old and your neighbor's four. You know, that's a big, like now it's like I have friends who are, you know, years older than me and I'm like, oh, our age. Like I'll talk to friends who are like five years older than me and I'm like, yeah, he's our age. And it just makes sense. Um, But at that time, like four and five is a big difference. And so this kid like looked up to me and and I say it sounds egotistical. A four-year-old looked up to me when I was five. No, but you know, kids do look up to each, to older kids. And so because I was into Jake the Snake, like what I remember about that kid is everything I was into, he was into, and I was cool with it. Like it wasn't like when you get older and it's like, I'm into this band and it's my band. It's my jewel. I found the, I found this. Oh, he, the only reason he knows about that band is because I told him about it. You know, it's like you get into that twisted shit when you get older. But when you're a little kid, nah, I mean, when you're a little kid, you still do that sometimes. I, I think about that. Like that little kid, I mean, I'm going to go off on a tangent here, but that that neighbor kid had a cousin who was older than I was, and so I looked up to him. Like his cousin would come to visit, you know, on a regular basis, and I thought this kid's cousin was the coolest person in the world. Like he had heard of everything. He knew about all kinds of things, like like toys and comics, and he just he just had this knowledge of things that I wasn't even aware of, and he lived in a different city, so he had like this different because at that time too like living in a different city could entirely change your knowledge of something you know it really could even even for a little kid it's like stores have different things you know the the culture is slightly different even in the same state and that's hard for people to pick up on especially like given how uniform and centralized our world is today and, you know, it's not like I lived in the Wild West or anything, but it was like you, uh, somebody's older cousin from another city could blow your mind every time you talk to him. And there was one time, though, where that kid, you can see where, like, that cousin was a jewel. Because <laughs> even people can be jewels in the endless pursuit of jewels. Because that kid, my my neighbor, there was one time where, because every time his cousin came to town, I know this is so interesting, but every time his cousin came to town, they would call me to come over because it was a big deal. It was like, come over. And we would have, it was just always amazing. This kid's cousin was like this, this magical creature who would come and we would just like, he would come up with ideas for like, if we were just playing guns, 
which is what we called role-playing and LARPing then. We used to call it playing guns. We'd pretend to be soldiers or action heroes or anything else. Like, he would come up with the best ideas for stuff for us to do. Like, we would really get into the LARP of playing guns when he was in town. So it was, it was just always fun. But the kid got jealous at one point. Like, the neighbor kid got jealous, and there was one time where he, we were all hanging out, the cousin was in town, and the kid came up to me, and he was like, He's my cousin. Listen, he's my cousin. Don't you ever mess with my family. No, it wasn't even that. It was just purely like possessiveness. I think maybe me and the cousin were getting along a little bit better. Like we were, you know, we were older. We were both older than the other kid. And so maybe there was an element of that. But out of nowhere, he was just like, you know what? He's my cousin. And you don't get to play with him. And I shoved the kid. Like I I was willing to fight. (laughs) I was willing to fight over it. Uh, I shoved the kid and went home. I think I I shoved him over, actually. You know, I've been in very few fights, you know. Uh, But I I remember, like, I really shoved him. And he cried. And and I went home. And uh, But it was like his... In that moment, like, his cousin was this jewel that he was in possession of. And, And he didn't want me to play with him. So it does start early, um, but it, but when you get older, my my point was when you get older, you do start getting more that way about your interests. Whereas when you're five years old, like you're just like, I like Jake the Snake, and I'm going to introduce you to Jake the Snake. I like Hulk Hogan, and I want you to be my my matching yellow tank top buddy. Like you're more open to that sort of stuff as a kid. But I mean, but I mean, we know that like kids like fight over toys. It's like I get to be this toy because that would happen. Like, oh, I, I want to be Han Solo. We would do that when we were playing guns, when we were LARPing. These people grow up, they become adults, and they're like, I'm into LARPing. My friends and I get dressed up, and we go to the park and pretend to be, you know, fantasy characters. It's like, that's what kids do, which is awesome. You know, I'm glad people can, I'm glad people can get into that as adults, because I wouldn't be able to. I do plenty of my own LARPing, but, uh... It'd be hard for me to pretend to be a character and, like, play with other adults. It would just be hard to get into that mindset. But as a kid, playing guns was the most fun thing in the world. But you would fight over, like, who you get to be. And weird stuff, too. Like, we were really into the movie Aliens. Like, I don't think... I None of us had seen Alien. But uh, we had... We'd seen Aliens, the sequel, which is a little more... Like, that's more of a kid movie. You know, Aliens has more of a kid appeal. Like, there's a bunch of characters. It's more like an action movie than than a ominous horror movie like the first one. And uh, but with Aliens, we we were obsessed with all the characters, like all the dudes, like Hicks, Apone. I still remember all the names because we were obsessed with all the all the male characters. Like none of us none of us wanted to be Ripley. We all liked Ripley. We all respected Ripley. But we didn't want to be Ripley when we played guns. And nobody, I don't think anybody would have beefed about it. I don't think anybody would have been, oh, you want to be Ripley? Oh, are you a gay man? Are you a gay man because you want to be the woman? I don't think any of us felt that way. We were, we were Ripley fans, but we didn't want to be Ripley. We didn't want to be the alien. You know that you have a serial killer in the neighborhood if they're like, oh, we're going to play guns? Well, I'm going to be the alien from Aliens. You know, you know, it's a, it's like Jeffrey Dahmer, like I mentioned before, like finding out that Jeffrey Dahmer's favorite character in Star Wars was the Emperor. 
Oh, like, yeah, that, that wasn't even a possibility in my mind. Like, as a Star Wars fan, it wasn't even a... Like, yeah, Darth Vader's cool. Boba Fett's cool. But, like, it, it didn't even register with me that you could even like the Emperor. Like, he was impressive. He was a compelling character. Like, he was a necessary part of the story. But you, I never once considered that it was possible to, like, for the Emperor to be someone's favorite character. And then I was reading about Jeffrey Dahmer, some, like, obscure facts about him, and found out that his favorite character was Emperor Palpatine. And I was like, yeah, that's, how, that's a serial killer. You're a serial killer if you watch Star Wars and think, oh, you know what? I want to I wanna be like Emperor Palpatine. That's my favorite character. You know, you're a serial killer for sure if you think that. And I would, I would say the same thing if you watch Aliens and you're like, I want to be the alien. But there were no serial killers in my neighborhood uh, because we all just wanted to be the dudes. Drake, I think, was one of the guys. Drake, Apone, Hicks. Nobody wanted to be Bishop, you know, this, the android. I think that's another. That's like not quite serial killer territory. But like if you want to be Bishop, you're weird for sure. You're autistic maybe. Not that there's anything wrong with autism. But I think you're autistic if you wanted to be Bishop from Aliens. Um, but anyway, so we would we would be those characters, but we would sometimes fight over it. Like like be like, today I want to be Apone. Today I want to be Apone, which is a weird name, Apone. <laughs> uh, but we would fight over that kind of thing. We we would. We were, you know, those were jewels. You know, those were jewels. Uh, you want to be a certain character. You want to be it. And you can't both be a pwn. You can't do double, you can't split duty. You can't, there can't be two a pwns. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so kids do get into like, kids clutch their jewels, whether it's wanting to play with a certain toy, whether it's, uh, you know, wanting to be a certain character when you LARP, whether it's, your cousin. Oh, you're getting along too well with my cousin and I feel left out. So I'm going to try to reel this in. I'm going to I'm going to take my cousin away from you cuz he's mine. But anyway, so any like long story short, like the the whole uh, Jake the Snake thing. Like I was totally cool with this kid being in as into Jake the Snake as I was cuz it turns out all kids were. And what was really cute is that kid, my neighbor kid, he would refer to Jake the Snake as the Snake Man, which as far as I know was never used. Like the WWF was never like, here comes the Snake Man. Oh, the Snake Man's coming to the ring. But it was like in his mind, in my neighbor's mind, it was just the Snake Man. His name's Jake the Snake Roberts. He's the Snake Man. And so even at the time, I knew that was kind of cute. Like you don't think, you don't look at what your friends are doing and think like, oh, that's cute. But in retrospect, I kind of knew at the time that there was something precocious about the fact that my neighbor thought his name was the Snake Man. But you, I even found out, too, it's like my one of my best friends, Cameron, told me a while back that he had a poster of Jake the Snake on his wall. And he's a little bit older than I am, but he told me he had a Jake the Snake poster on his, on his childhood, the wall of his childhood room. And I was like... There's a reason why we're friends. Because <laughs> he's somebody that, like, as far as I know, has had no interest in wrestling since then. But it's like, the reason we're friends is because we were we both were Jake the Snake fans. But yeah, when he told me that, I was like, heck yeah, you did. Heck yeah, you had a Jake the Snake poster on your wall. I knew I liked you. Um, so that's funny to me that Jake the Snake was so popular. 
But anyway, getting back to like the cave drawing thing, it's so funny to me that we look at these like old carvings and we're like, we think it's this. We think it's that. And like, yeah, maybe sometimes you can figure out the context, but like another example is like I found this drawing where I don't know what the heck it is. It's dated from October 1991, which makes me five years old. And it's a drawing of this just freakish character. Half like it's like if you drew a line down the middle of the body, half of the body is some sort of beast, like a humanoid beast. But it doesn't look like it's a wolf man, but it's something maybe like a Sasquatch type thing. It's, It's hard to tell what it is, but it's a beast, a humanoid beast of some kind. And that half of the body is holding what looks like a maybe a big razor or a tool of some kind. It's some sort of hand. It's probably a weapon. Like knowing, looking at my childhood drawings, like every every guy I ever drew is holding a weapon, and so it must be some kind of weapon. But I don't know exactly what it is. It almost looks like a giant razor, like a shaving razor, but it's hard to tell. Uh, and then the other half of him is just a cowboy, so it's like half beast, half cowboy, line drawn down the middle, and the cowboy is holding a gun. It's not a six shooter, and three bullets are coming out because I used to draw guns, and and you, I would draw like circular bullets coming out with like with like fire or smoke and that, or like force like I would draw lines to show that they're moving and so there's like three bullets coming out of the gun and and he's in a brimmed hat like and they they share the brimmed hat like the brimmed hat isn't just on the cowboy they they're both wearing the brimmed hat a beast in a brimmed hat Uh, But they're both wearing that. And what's really odd about it is the brimmed hat, like on the brim, it says trick or treat in big letters. And then on the band, you can see where I tried to write trick or treat there too, but I couldn't, I couldn't um, finish it. There wasn't enough room for me to write the entire phrase. So it says trick or T, trick or T, baby. (laughs) Trick or (laughs) T. Um, but, uh, I don't know that, and that's honestly, that's one of the most bizarre things about this drawing. Like I don't, and I feel like this character, it's so weird that I wonder, I I wonder where I got it from. Like I, for some reason I have some vague memory that it might be from, like I used to collect Ninja Turtle comics, like not, I didn't collect them, but like I used to read Ninja Turtle comics and I had a bunch of them. And uh, they would come out with these Halloween edition ones that were really cool. They were like a one-off story. And there was one where I feel like it might have had some like freakish hybrid half man, half beast. But this, the drawing, it's a little too weird. Like I can't see anything using this. Like I can't see Ninja Turtles actually having this character. Maybe it was inspired by that. Maybe it's maybe I maybe it is like an exact copy of it, but I I just don't think so. Like the trick or treat thing in particular, like a brimmed hat that says trick or treat twice on the on the band and the brim. Trick or tea and trick or treat. You know, there's something very strange about that that doesn't feel like I like, like I copied it from somewhere. Um, so who knows? I mean, who knows what that's from, if anything. But then the other interesting thing about it is behind, either above or behind the character is a fishing pole. It must be a fishing pole. It's like a long wooden rod with a line coming down from it. 
and then there's like what appears to be like a there's a like a gray thing like a maybe a piece of metal there must be a piece of metal like a flat piece of metal at the bottom of the fishing line and then below that is what looks like half of a sun like you think about the way a little kid draws a sun like an orange circle with lines like radiating out from it and it looks like that but half of it on the bottom of the fishing pole and it took me a minute trying to figure it out because I was like, was I trying to draw like a, a sun hanging from a fishing pole? Because that's really esoteric and interesting. But I don't think that's what it is. I think it's a lure or whatever it's called. I think they're called lures. I'm not a fishing expert. but Because um, <laughs> only the experts know what what uh, the things, what the components of a fishing pole are. But uh no, I think it's a, a lure because I it brought back a memory where I, there was this period where I was obsessed with fishing lures, like the ones, specifically the ones that are like a bright color with kind of a fringe hanging off of them. They're like rubber maybe, and they have, they're usually very colorful, sometimes multicolored, and they have a fringe, you know, they're designed to attract fish. They're, they're supposed to look like a, I, I don't know what they're supposed to look like, um, some sort of sea creature maybe, something that fish want to eat. And I went through a period because, like, my dad fished, and we had a cabin where, you know, it was was on the water, so my dad would go fishing a lot. And I remember seeing those around the house, and I was just, they seemed so strange to me because they were so attractive. They were almost like a toy, but it wasn't like I tried to play with them, but it was just something that caught my eye. And so I went through this period where I was just really obsessed with fishing lures. And uh, I have a memory, too, of going to a store there. Because we had a cabin on on this island, and you'd go to the local store, and you know, just going to the store. Like, I remember there was like a like a general store there, and they had VHSs you could rent, groceries like like simple groceries. It wasn't like a full on grocery store. You know, just basic necessities. It wasn't a convenience store. It was, it was more than a convenience store, but it was just some local store, the general store that had yeah, you could get um, you could rent. VHSs and Nintendo games, like like NES. I mean, this is when only the NES existed. Super Nintendo wasn't even around yet. Uh, but you could rent VHSs. You could get groceries, basic groceries, probably other odds and ends. But you could also buy fishing supplies. And I remember being in that store, and there was a section where they had all these fishing lures. And I was just, like, looking around, just, oh, my God, like this is amazing. Like, I wanted them. I don't know why, but it was like I wanted those. And uh, so I'm almost positive that's what I drew. It makes total sense that at that time, that was during my, oh, this is the artist fishing, this is the artist fishing lure. This is the artist fishing lure, period. You've heard of Picasso's blue period? You've heard of whoever that was, Van Gogh, Picasso, they're all the same guy to me. This is Van Gogh's uh, blue period. Oh, this is uh, this is Eric's fishing lure period. It was though, and I'm almost positive that's what's hanging from the fishing pole, and it makes sense. But the question is, why did I draw a fishing pole with a lure hanging from it, either above or behind this half man, half beast cowboy with a hat that says "trick or treat" twice on it? That's the stuff you can't understand. Like, imagine if that. Imagine if like archaeologists found that drawing 200 even even 50 years from now even right now even right now 
if an archaeologist found that drawing and didn't have any other context, they would have no way of understanding what I was trying to depict because I myself can't even figure out my own shit that I did back then. You know, I can't even figure it out myself. So just interesting. It's interesting to see that. And I guess that kind of gets me, you know, thinking too, where there's so much like that. You know, there's so much like that where you, we can look back at history and we find things and we try to piece things together, but there's so much that existed in the space beyond our, there's so much that existed that we can't comprehend unless we were there. And even if we were there, we can't understand. Like most of the people that I personally know in my real life would have no idea what I'm talking about half the time on this show. Not because they're stupid. Not because they're uninteresting people. It's just like sometimes I make references to things. Like if I, I like I purposely on this show try not to talk about I try to limit the amount that I talk about, you know, underground art and music for lack of a better term because I feel that that's a very specific interest and I, there's certain things I don't want to betray but I also don't think it's I don't think it's necessarily relatable if you're not into those things and not just not into those things but like you have to be into them the same way I'm into them which is you know just another reason not to talk about them but that's a great example where there's there's like people that you know and that you call friends or family and they can't even understand like what you're talking about or what you're into. Even though you're using the English language, even though you're explaining things in words that they know the definition to, they just can't necessarily know unless they were there. And so the idea of trying to go back in history and understand like what people's interests were or what they were trying to communicate, yeah, while there are human universals, there's just so many things that are left behind even in the moment in which you live. There are so many things that just, even in your own language, in your own city, in your own neighborhood, in your own friend group, there are so many things that get lost in translation even then that just can't be understood because you have different points of reference. And so we're missing people's points of reference in history, and that's that's one reason why I find history fascinating, but why I... I'm not interested in trying to come up with like conclusions or understand why people felt the way they did about a given issue. Like we look back, like our, our historical, our contemporary narcissism, you know, makes us look back at history and we assume we knew exactly what those people were feeling when we can't even do that with people we know today. It's like with the political stuff. It's like, I think about the wall issue a lot. I don't think about a lot, but like I, it's something I think about when it comes to politics because the wall is such a polarizing point. And while there are people who want a wall for legitimately xenophobic motivations, like they don't like outsiders. They don't like people who aren't American citizens who look like them. There are people who feel that way, but that doesn't describe the whole of it. There are, you know... The problem with the whole wall debate is it's like you look at ancient cities, some of which still exist, and what do you find? You find a wall. It is built into us that, hey, you need to protect the place in which you live with a wall, which is why there's always that stupid, it's a stupid argument, but it's also, it is relevant when people are like, yeah, but you lock your door. Oh, when you're in your house, you lock your door. 
you have a fence around your yard. And a, and a big reason for having a fence or a gate is to keep people out. It's not to keep everything in. Like, yeah, you want to keep your dog in the yard. But, like, beyond that, the reason why you have a fence, a gate, or a wall around your house is to keep people out. And it's always, like, kind of a, an annoying argument when somebody, like, when some conservative pundit is like, well, you have a wall around your house. And they, they point that out because they'll be like, Nancy Pelosi. Nance Pelosi lives in a uh, she lives in a walled community. She lives in a gated community, which you find a lot with these people, which is funny. You find that a lot with these like leftist celebrities and um you know pundits and just different people, politicians where it's like, yeah, they live in gated communities, which is funny that they also are going to demonize some poor redneck for thinking we need a wall around the country. You know, that is hypocritical. And it's like, well, no, but I need my wall because I'm a celebrity. I need my wall because I'm wealthy. And it really does get down to that. There, there really is a class element to it where it's like, oh, no, I can have a wall around my immediate environment. But you can't want a wall around the country. Otherwise, you are the worst thing in the world. You are xenophobic bigot that's your name we're gonna start calling you xb baby xenophobic bigot you don't even have a name to me anymore you're just an xb pretty much that's isn't that the level we're at you don't even have a name anymore you're an xb no but we get like people are that way about it and even though i i i kind of I don't like that. I don't. I wouldn't use that argument to somebody where it's like you live in a gated community. Who are you to tell anybody not to have a wall? You know, it's still a valid argument, though. Like if that doesn't, that requires. You know, there's a contradiction or a hypocrisy that has to be reconciled, and I can't really know. I don't really know how you would reconcile that. I don't know how you could demonize somebody for wanting a wall around the country while also wanting a wall around your house or your neighborhood of wealthy people. I don't know how you justify that except to say, like, well, I need to be protected from people who hate me because I'm a famous person who's polarizing. You know, I understand that line of logic, but I don't see how that doesn't apply to citizens of a country, for example. And then the other aspect of that, too, is like just to get back to like the the ancient aspect is just that we can see from history that people built walls around their villages, around their towns, around their castles. You know, it's like walls are, are always there. They're ancient because people fight. People raided other people. I mean, I come from Scandinavian heritage and I'm very well aware, you know, I'm very well aware of that in terms of like. Some of my people, I don't know if they were my relatives, I haven't traced it back that far, but some of my people would get in boats, go to other places, and rape, murder, kill, steal. And so what do you do about that? You build a wall. You build a wall to keep my people from doing that to you. You know, I know I had farmers. I know some of my Scandinavian uh, ancestors were farmers but it turns out most vikings were farmers as well they didn't just spend all their time on boats they uh, they actually had farms when they lived on land and their wives tended to the farms and an interesting fact too is that 
the Christianization of Scandinavia largely happened because men were off doing other things in their boats, and the wives were Christianized. They were converted. They converted to Christianity while the men were gone, and many men returned to find their wives Christian, and they in turn had to do it. You know, they they in turn became Christian because their wives, you know, were like, guess what? We're Christians now. And that is that is a very interesting thing. I know this episode's going all over, but I wouldn't have it any other way. Which is that, like, I know a lot of dudes who are not really that uh, they're they're not entirely comfortable with some of the talking points on the radical left. But they either have girlfriends or wives who have gotten into that, and as a result, they kind of toe the line with it, even though they don't agree with it. They want to, you know, keep the peace at home. So they nod along. They nod along when their wife or girlfriend, you know, talks about that stuff. And I, I think that's an, an age-old process. Even though we think of, like, history as this, like, patriarchal, you know, it's just men telling women what to do. A lot of cultural shifts have happened, even in patriarchal societies, because a certain idea resonated with wives, You know, and if you think I'm full of it, we'll do a little more research. These people who want to tell you about history, it turns out, have done very little objective studying of history. And so the idea that, like, the Christianization of pagan Europe, at least in Scandinavia, in Sweden, was heavily influenced by the fact that wives were converted to Christianity while the men were away, and they returned and became Christians themselves. Just a fascinating little fact. You know, I'm not saying that that was the sole reason why Scandinavia converted to Christianity, but it was significant enough. I've read about it. It makes sense. And you can kind of see that today, where it's like even men who I think of as pretty pretty sturdy in their beliefs, in their values live in households that are actually dominated by other ways of thinking because it's what their wife or girlfriend thinks. And that's okay. You know, I'm not saying that to be like, oh, women are bad. You know, I'm not saying that at all. Um, Hopefully there's a balance. All I would say is hopefully there's a balance. But certain ideas are more attractive to women. And I know that that's saying that is controversial at this point, but it's not. It's not controversial. But I know that People have gotten caught up in a way of thinking that is forced controversy on ideas that really aren't controversial at all. And I'm not going to play that game. I'm not going to get sucked into that. Um, but anyway, so it's like looking at history, there are so many things like the wall where it's like, it's not even about other people being bad. I'm telling you that my people were the reason other people had walls. And that's not, that's not me saying that, oh, all the people coming to the U.S. are like Vikings. They're horrible, even though we've accepted Vikings. Like, it's funny how we get on, uh, we, we are so against these historical figures who did bad things now. They, the ones who did bad things that we see as, as some sort of, uh, that we think contributed to the bad things that are going on today. I guess that'd be an uneloquent way of putting it. The people who did bad things 
that can be correlated to the bad things still going on today. But yet we we think Vikings are really cool. Our society has decided that Vikings are really cool. We have TV shows about them. We have superheroes that are, you know, Thor is, is you know, basically a Viking. They make mo- Marvel movies about him. It's totally acceptable to be into heavy metal bands that use Viking imagery and themes. But where else in society do you see people being like, you know who's cool? The murdering rapists. You know, and, and I mean, but but the problem is, yeah, it's like you could say that about Vikings. You could say they're murdering rapists and you'd be right. And it's kind of weird that we're willing to put them on this cultural pedestal, which I'm fine with, because I think there's a lot more to them than just being murdering rapists. <laughs> which is like funny to say, you know, the idea that there's more to them than that. Um, but still it, it's true. And like, so the popularity of Vikings in modern American pop culture is because there was more to them. They do represent more than just their worst qualities, which is something people have a hard time doing when it comes to other historical figures. It's like George Washington was this George Washington thought this. So we have to hate him forever. But Vikings, we can see the multifaceted, complicated nature in which they lived and therefore, like, watch TV shows about them. Which I'm sure, like, those TV shows do show, like, the full spectrum of Vi- of what Vikings were. But just the fact that we can accept that but not other things is weird. You know, it's just weird how, like, this line of logic gets created in things that doesn't actually make sense. You know, it's like, why does pop culture allow that, but not other things? I don't know. Uh, but with uh, with the wall thing, I just always think like, you know, it's like, you know, I, I know not everybody believes in ancestral memory, although I do. And uh, if you want to get scientific about it, you know, th- there's reason to believe that it exists in animals. There's reason to believe it exists in humans, that there's some sort of ancestral memory. And so it would make sense that certain people feel the need to have a wall. It makes sense that certain people feel threatened by outsiders, regardless of why. Because you can see where everybody feels threatened by outsiders. As soon as you establish an in-group, you feel threatened by the out-group, which is a basic sociological phenomenon. And... When you have an outgroup, you become ex- when you have an in-group, you become exclusionary. For one reason or another, you want to exclude people. If you're throwing a party, you have people you don't want to come. And in some cases, it's the people who uh, it's it's not even like certain people are deliberately excluded. It's just that they're not one of the they're not a member of the in-group. And I, I even went to parties when I was in, like, high school where, like, somebody showed up who wasn't, like, accepted. Not even somebody that anybody hated, but they just weren't, like, part of the cool crowd. And it was like, oh, why are they here? We need a wall. This party needs a wall. So that, that sort of thinking, you know, it doesn't matter what the motivation is. And, yeah, some people's motivations are horrible. Some people have, you know, extremely distorted views of outsiders, But it doesn't change the fact that there's some sort of ancestral memory, and that ancestral memory, to me, is proven by the fact that, 
you look at ancient cities and they all have a wall. There was an idea that bad people will come, and we know that bad people came. We know that tribes fought. We know that your neighbor, a neighboring city could invade. You know what I mean? A, neighbor, a neighboring tribe could come after you. It's not just people who are fundamentally different. Like people who look like you and actually have very similar cultural practices to you can be a threat to your city, to your land. And so you keep them out with a wall. And so the idea of treating that sort of impulse like it's just absolutely horrible shows a lack of understanding. And it doesn't mean you have to say it's okay to have a wall or that you want a wall. It doesn't, you, don't, you don't have to agree with it. But to paint it with a broad brush and say that, oh, the only reason why people want to have a wall around their country is because they are XBs, xenophobic bigots. To say that is just, you know, that makes you a xenophobic bigot. That makes you exhibit. No, I mean, I don't, I hate to use that line of logic. It makes you the thing that you hate. Although, isn't that often the case? You know, it does really make people become the thing they hate. I think by simply hating something, you inevitably become the thing you hate. Um, but uh, I don't know. I, I can't believe I'm on this tangent. I was just going to talk about childhood drawings. But it is funny to me. You look at a childhood drawing and like there's so much in that that even you don't understand. Even if you know what it is you were drawing, you're still like, what is that fishing pole doing there? And imagine some archaeologist finds that on a cave wall, and they're like, well, the fishing pole represents this. Well, their society was largely aquatic, and they uh, they fished for their sustenance. And uh, it, it appears that a, a sun is hanging from the fishing pole, which shows that they believe that God created the sun, and God, they, they saw God as a fisherman because God, uh, because, because they lived off of fish, and the fish sustained their life. They saw God as a fisherman, and God suspend the, suspended the sun with a fishing pole, and then it turns out it's a lure. It's not a sun. It's a lure. So you can see where people like do these wild, they, they get really imaginative about artifacts from history when it's like you don't know what sort of mundane influence there was on this piece of art. Like, it turns out that my dad fished, and so there were lures around the house. And I went to a store once where it was filled with lures, and I thought it was fascinating because they were weird-looking. And so I drew a picture, and when I was drawing this weird half-man, half-beast, which is open for interpretation, oh, clearly he, he saw humanity as, as a, a hybrid between being an animal and being a cowboy because, uh, you know, man is dual in nature and uh, it was showing the dichotomy between the animal and man and the, the desire to be a cowboy with total freedom in the wild west. You know, it, it's just like, in the wild west, you know, it's just, I hate, <laughs> I hate the way people talk about things, man. This is why I gotta, this is why I, I've devoted myself to spiritual discipline because I just hear stuff like that and I just, I shrivel up into just this nasty critic. It's hard not to when you hear people like analyze things and interpret things. It's like, no, I, I was interested in fishing because my dad fished and I liked the way lures looked. So after I drew the half man, half beast, who might have been influenced by a Ninja Turtles comic, I don't know. I drew 
a fishing pole with a lure. Maybe just be as maybe it's totally disconnected. I was just throwing in things that I was interested in in that moment, and it becomes something. It becomes symbolic. When in reality, the only thing that I think is truly open for interpretation is the why it says trick or treat on a, on the cowboy hat. Oh, clearly, clearly the trick or treat is in reference to the fact that we are all wearing costumes in life. We go through life wearing costumes and, you know, we're all LARPing. Therefore, the cowboy hat says trick or treat because it's almost as if we are all Wild West cowboys wearing a costume to get through life. We're all playing roles, which is like uh, dressing up in a costume for Halloween. You know, it's like people talk that way. Yeah, I'm, I'm using a ridiculous example. People talk that way and it's unbearable. Sometimes you just got to take things at face value. Even though this show is all about like deep analysis and I'm probably, I am that person that I'm hating right now. Again, when you, when you hate something, you become that thing. And while I'm talking about someone's ridiculous anthropological analysis of cave drawings or whatever else they come across, I do that. I'm that. I think we can't not be that. If you, you know, I think to not do that is to be dead. Therefore, it's like being alive means overthinking. You know? But uh, anyway, just to just to go back around to uh, childhood, you know, I was thinking about that kid, the neighbor kid, like looking up to me. And that sounds really egotistical. When I was five years old, my four-year-old neighbor looked up to me and anything I was into, he was into. Anything... Anything I liked, he liked. But it was cool because you had a buddy. At that point in time, like, you don't feel threatened. Like, your identity doesn't feel as threatened. Like, even though, yeah, we fought over his cousin or we fought over who gets to be Apone when we're LARPing as Aliens characters, you know, you still, like, you're happy to have a buddy. And that's a good feeling. And I think about it, too, because, like, there was a neighbor kid there who there was a kid who lived two doors down who was a year older than me. And again, like, a year is a lot at that time. And I thought he was just the smartest and coolest person in the world. And there was a phase actually where, you know, my, my mom still remembered it and would joke about it like right up until she passed away. But like there was this period where I just went around telling my family, Joe knows everything. And I meant it. I was like, Joe knows everything. And uh, it was just, it was funny to them because it was like, I thought this kid knew everything because it seemed like he did. He knew a lot. Like he, you know, I I don't know what a, you know, I don't I don't think he was a scholar in one specific thing. I think he was just a kid in the neighborhood who was older than I was, who knew about a lot of things. And so I went around during this period, like we we would be playing outside. It was probably like probably like one day, but still there was like I said it more than once. I told people, I told multiple people, hey, Joe knows everything. Joe knows everything, but and to mean that. It's like people feel people get that way as adults. Like they they have like a spiritual master, and they're like he knows everything. But I met my spiritual master as like a, a five year old, and it, was, it turned out my spiritual master was a six year old. But actually, there is something to that because a memory I have of that kid. It's amazing. I think about it sometimes because you know I think about kids being mean. I was mean. My friends were mean. 
kids are mean to each other. There's a lot of sparring. There's a lot of, you know, it does it does get into cruelty, but it's like there's a lot of just natural, healthy sparring. I think part of development, especially being a boy, means mentally sparring, sometimes physically. You know, I never got in any real fights, but it's like me shoving my friend because he told me I, I couldn't hang out with his cousin because he was jealous or something, you know, like me shoving him in response. Like that to me, like looking back, that seemed like a necessary response. Like when someone gets bitchy at you and possessive of their cousin who you're like having a good time hanging out with because they're jealous of the fact that like you're having a good time, like you should shove them. Like that kid deserved to get shoved. No, I'm glad I didn't break his nose or hurt him. But it's like, he deserved for me to forcefully shove him to the ground like I did. Because that's how you learn not to do that. Like, maybe he learned. Like, he certainly never said anything to me again about his cousin. He certainly never, ever said to me ever again, he's my cousin and you can't hang out with him. He never said anything bitchy like that about his cousin to me again. Maybe because I shoved him to the ground. So that kind of sparring, you know, no, you shouldn't like smash someone's face and be like, oh, it's just boyhood sparring. No, it, it, but you should shove someone when they do that to you. You know, like I, I think that was the healthiest response for everybody. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I just, I, that's how I see it. But yeah, there's a lot of mental sparring, too, that's necessary. But I also look back at like moments of just pure kindness like thinking about that neighbor kid, my spiritual, my six-year-old spiritual master. In when I was in first grade, he was in second grade, and we were in a split class together. And that's a really interesting thing that so the school would set up split classes, and that shows you how arbitrary this stuff is. Because you think about like, oh, first and second grade, and then I go through this three-month period called summer at the end of the year, and I'm magically I have a different identity. I'm a second grader now. And that is huge. Like when you're a kid and you go from first grade to second grade, summer feels like a million years. Like it's this clear distinction. It's this ritual. And then you're all of a sudden a completely different person, even though you're the same age. You know, you, you haven't even had your birthday yet. You're the same exact age. But yet going from first to second grade is this monumental change in your life. And it changes the entire way you talk about yourself. Like, if, if you've gone from first to second grade, and someone says, oh, Eric's a first grader, you snap back, no, I'm a second grader now. You know, it's, it's like I was talking about, about kids, like, even just when you're five years old and your neighbor is four, you seem like a god to them. That year is huge. And, you know, me thinking my six-year-old neighbor knew everything when I was five, and I literally went around telling people that. You know, it's, it's this, it kind of relates to like how monumental it is to go from first to second grade. But it was interesting to me to be in a split class because half the class were second graders, half were first graders. And I guess they did that because they didn't have enough kids maybe to like warrant a, a, a class. Maybe they didn't have enough teachers. I don't know. I don't know what the, how it's organized, but it changed my life forever. I don't know the reason why they had a split class. It wasn't something I voluntarily chose. Like, my mom didn't sign me up for it. It was just something the school did because that's how it worked out. That's how the math worked out. And it's funny, though, how you, I don't even know why they put me in a split class with older kids, with second graders. But it changed my life forever. <laughs> 
Um, and it's kind of amazing, too, on a, on a teacher level. Like the fact that that teacher, Mrs. Co-Martin, which is an interesting name, Co-Martin, C-O-Martin. One word, Co-Martin. Not Martin, Co-Martin. Never come across that name ever since. Mrs. Co-Martin. But uh, Mrs. Co-Martin had to teach like essentially two lesson plans or like teach or like come up with lesson plans that could adapt to both a first grader and a second grader. And she probably knew in her mind that it's arbitrary. Like, oh, we have to start showing the the second graders how multiplication works. Whereas the first graders are are, are going to focus on addition and subtraction or something like that. It's probably something small like that. And in reality, it really doesn't matter. Like you could probably teach first and second graders the same thing and it doesn't, it's not going to impact their development at all. Because a lot of it too, like when you're doing like art projects, it doesn't make a difference. Like you could have the first and second graders do the same art project and it doesn't matter. But when it came to probably like, probably like math or something, it was slightly different. I think, too, like they would have probably the second graders would read slightly more advanced books. It was probably something like that. But it's interesting that that teacher had to consider that. It's interesting that she had to consider the fact that she has two different kids. And then you get to junior high where, you, you know, everybody's mixed in. Like you, you go to math class and it's like you have stupid ninth graders with smart seventh graders and a bunch of eighth graders because I went to a junior high, which was seven through nine, not a middle school. Which is funny because my friend, another story, Jesus, uh, my best childhood friend, you know, still a dear friend of mine, Nick, he, uh, his parents still live in our hometown and, and they're, they're still closely connected to all these families that we grew up with. And so they have these holiday parties where they go out to a bar, all the families, the kids, the grown kids, the, the parents, they all go to a bar and get really drunk. And these are all very wealthy people. Most of them, not all of them. I mean, everybody's middle class, but there's there's definitely some wealth among some of these families. And they, my family was disconnected. Like like my mom got along with some of these people, but it, I was always different. You know, I I was I had a single mother, and w- while we were never struggling at all, like we always lived comfortably. You know, I had a single mother. Our family was our family was weird. But not in like an off-putting way. You know, my mom was friends with all the moms and that kind of thing. But there is a difference to that. Like when you're when you're from like a single mother household, there is just something different about it when, when everybody else has a nuclear family. And it's not, and I don't say that like I was alienated because of that. I just mean it's a different dynamic. Because those parents would have like dinner parties where they would drink wine as couples and and my mom didn't drink and was single. And so it's just a different dynamic. Like you don't, and, and you know, we left town, you know, immediately when we could. Like we, we moved out of my hometown as soon as we could. So it's, it's just that kind of thing. Whereas these families are still there. They're still close and they're wonderful people. You know, I don't say this to be, to say anything bad about them. They're wonderful people. It's just, they, my family was always very different from them. But these families still get together every year, and they always have, and they drink and they have a great time. But one of the sons of, of these families became a teacher at our old junior high, which must be just insane. Like that's like the ultimate townie. It's like the ultimate townie experience. Is like not only do you stay in your hometown forever, but you, you become a 
teacher at your own junior high. Um, but this guy, he was, he was a little bit older than we were a couple years older. So we had like gone to school with him, but he wasn't like really our peer. He had a brother who was our age, but he became a teacher and Nick was drinking with them. And at some point they turned our junior high into a middle school. They changed it from seventh grade through ninth grade to sixth grade through eighth grade, which is huge. Like I'm talking about all these distinctions between like when you go from first grade to second grade, changing an entire school from seventh through ninth to sixth through eighth is a, is a fundamental change. And they tore down the whole school. Like they tore down the junior high, which was a dump, a beautiful dark dump. It was, it was like a dungeon. It was a dark place and, uh, dark in every respect. It was a dark school. And I went to a dark school, but they tore it down and then rebuilt it. And then they changed it to a middle school, which to me means like the school I went to doesn't exist at all anymore. Like the physical school doesn't exist. And when you change something from a junior high to a middle school, it's not the same school. And so Nick was drinking with this guy who's now a teacher at the middle school. And Nick referred to this to the old school as the junior high Kirkland junior high. And, and this guy, the teacher was like, you mean Kirkland middle school? And Nick said, no, you know, I, I, I still call it junior high. I'm not going to call it middle school. And this guy launched into this thing about, no, it's called middle school now. Like it's called Kirkland middle school, like call it by the right name. And he's a teacher there. So he probably has some, like he's emotionally invested. I mean, that conversation would have been better served with a shove. Like that is the adult equivalent of being like, I don't want you hanging out with my cousin because uh, I'm secretly jealous of the fact that you get along better with him. You know, that's the equivalent of that conversation being like, it's actually called Kirkland middle school now. And I and if you're going to talk to me while we drink these beers in this bar at this family holiday party, I want you to talk about the school using the terms I want you to talk about. It's Kirkland Middle School. You know, it's like that's insane. But normal, but expected. People do that. And so Nick Nick didn't give in. You know, there's a reason why this guy's you know, my brother, because he didn't give in. He stuck to the Kirkland junior high thing. And they got in like this little, not like a violent argument, but it's like they got into a little argument. And then the guy got pissed and like kind of stormed off and was cold to him the rest of the night. And and apparently too, like even like the parents and stuff kind of picked up on it. They were like, oh, what happened between you and uh, that dude? Like, and uh, they had, because they had this argument about like what the, the school is called, and for Nick, it was a matter of principle. It was like, I don't buy into this new shit they're trying to do. I went to Kirkland Junior High. That represents something to me. That's like the, tra- it's like being traditional. It's like Nick took the conservative stance, in my opinion, which is it used to be called Kirkland Junior High. It was always Kirkland Junior High. I went to Kirkland Junior High. Therefore, I'm going to call it Kirkland Junior High. I'm not a part of this new middle school world that you're a part of because you're a freaking teacher there, which is great. I'm glad you're teaching kids. Like, this guy's a nice guy. I'm, I'm sure he's a great teacher. I don't really know him anymore. Um, but uh, I don't know him anymore. 
but still, it's like it makes sense that this matters on some level to you because you're employed by that school. You're part of the new world because you're a freaking teacher at the new school, at the new middle school. But to me, it's a junior high still. I went to Kirkland Junior High. But it's funny how like that caused an argument. They argued about what you call that school that, you know, is long gone and now a middle school. And that's exactly what I mean. That, those are the things that history, that historians could never know. Like a historian might find some ancient record if they really gave a shit about, oh, in, in 2008, they tore down Kirkland Junior High and rebuilt it and they rebranded it as a middle school. Like a historian could figure that out, but a historian is never going to know that someone from your hometown became a teacher there and got in an argument with your friend over the fact that they still called it a junior high. A historian can never find that. And you think about how many conversations, how many arguments like that existed in history. Like think about all of the people in Rome thousands of years ago who had little arguments like that. It's like, oh, we, this man, we found a record of this man who killed this other man. We believe that it was a lover's quarrel. It was a love triangle gone wrong. And it's like, no, it turns out like he was calling a, a building by a different name after that building had been torn down and rebuilt and its name changed. <laughs> you know, that's the kind of stuff that like no amount of history can ever tell you about. And yet it's the stuff that stuff like it becomes big. Like my when my friend got back, like like the next day when he told me about his interaction with this guy where he's like, yeah, he was really upset at me for for still calling it a junior high when it's a middle school now. And I just laughed. But I was also like I was like vicariously mad about that. I was like, what a dork. You know, what a freaking dork, <laughs> you know, it's just, that's the kind of thing you can't ever, uh, figure out. But anyway, I was going to say something nice, like any enough about enough about dorks. Um, the guy who I was talking about where I was in this split level first and second grade class and, uh, and what would, what would a historian have to say about that? If, if a historian found some record of that class, they'd be like, well, there were second graders in the class, so it must have been a second grade class. Mrs. Comartin must have taught second grade that year. And it's like, they wouldn't be able to understand, they'd find some record that shows that a second grader had that class, therefore it was a second grade class, but it turns out it was a split class. But a historian might not know how to figure that out. Anyway, that's, that's just a really stupid line of logic. But anyway, like that kid was in my class. My friend, the kid who I thought knew everything at the time, was in my class because I had the privilege of being in a split class. And there were two things that happened that year that are incredible to me that show that even though kids, even though boys need to spar... And I think it's great that boys spar. I think it's great that boys are pieces of shit to each other because it, it builds thick skin. That competitive spirit is so important to bettering yourself, not just competition against other people, but that competitive spirit that boys feel and act out can be applied to yourself, you know, later on. And that's how you improve yourself. So as much as I value that, 
I have to remember the instances of just pure kindness that happened because two things happened that year in my split class. One was we had to go to PE and I was late to the shoe tying game. Like I didn't learn how to tie my shoes until probably first grade. And uh, I was late to, I don't know why, you know, I don't know why it took me so long to tie my shoes, but, uh, I still have a memory of uh, wearing... I, I wore, like, Velcro shoes for way too long. And the little kid next door, the one I've been talking about throughout this episode, he actually learned to tie his shoes before I did, even though I was older. It probably shattered his, his, his illusions about me. And one time he came over to my house, and I was wearing my Velcro shoes, and he looked down at him, and he said, those are butthead shoes. Those look like butthead shoes. And my mom said, hey, don't say that. Um, I swear to God, he said that swear to God. But anyway, so like I was wearing butthead shoes for way too long. And, uh, you know, like later though, I started to wear tied shoes to school because I didn't want to get made fun of for wearing Velcro shoes. I didn't want everybody to to see me in my butthead shoes. And you'd go to PE class to, and they would, you would do things, but you'd keep your shoes on. PE was mostly a shoes-on experience. But one day, I went to PE, and, and my mom would tie my shoes in the morning. Like, she would tie my shoes for me so that I, I could go to school with my tied shoes. And there was a, a day in PE, though, where we went, and uh, the PE teacher said, uh, take your shoes off. And it was because we were doing, uh, like, I think they called it tumbling. It was like we were doing things on mats. We were like learning how to do somersaults. We were learning how to do these activities on mats. So we needed to take our shoes off. And I was like, oh, no, I'm not going to be able to put these shoes back on. I'm not going to be able to tie my shoes back on. And it's going to be embarrassing. And so at the end of the class, she told us to put our shoes on. And I put them on. And I told Joe, I told the kid who knows everything. I don't know how to tie my shoes. I think he knew that. And you know what he did? He, he tied my shoes for me. And he was in a rush. He had to tie his own shoes, and then he tied my shoes for me. He didn't make a big deal out of it. And I remember he was kind of stressed because, like, everybody else was starting to line back up to go back to our regular class. P.E. was over. And so he was trying to hurry, but he took the time to tie my shoes for me. And I think after that, I think that experience caused me to learn. I think after that, I was just like, hey, mom, I got to, I got to, you got to really help me tie my shoes. I don't want to, I don't want to be in that position again. But I'm amazed that kid, he didn't make fun of me. He didn't mock me. He helped me. He tied my shoes for me. That's amazing that he would do that. And in a way, he didn't call attention to it. He didn't say, hey, look, I'm, I'm tying this idiot's shoes. He just tied them quietly and something else he did that was really amazing was I also peed my pants I I probably sound like a mess I probably sound like a mess the way I'm describing myself here I didn't know how to tie my shoes and then there was a a day where you know this is the thing that they do to kids that's really cruel I understand discipline. I understand not letting kids run wild, but you had to get approval to go to the bathroom. I guess because if if you don't, kids are just going to be going. But it should be a thing where you notify the teacher. I understand why the teacher wants to know 
And then they don't want too many kids in the bathroom at the same time because kids do stuff in the bathroom. Kids do uh, cause trouble in the bathroom. That's true. Like, I, I've done it. My friends and I would do things in the bathroom when we were there together. That sounds perverted, but no, we would do things. One thing we would do is we would get paper towels wet and throw them against the, the walls, and they would stick and dry there. So it, it, almost looked, it would dry, and it would almost look like, look like bread. <laughs> like the first time I ever saw that, I thought it was bread. I was like, why is there bread stuck to the bathroom wall? Like this place is freaking weird. But no, it turns out if you got paper towels wet, these brown paper towels, these thick paper towels, and you threw them hard against the wall of the bathroom, they would stick there forever. And they would dry, and when they dried, they were like practically glued to the wall, and they looked like textured bread because you would ball them up kind of. And so boys do that. They stick bread to the wall of the bathroom, or they break things, or they make fun of each other, or they fight. Um, so I understand why why the teacher wanted to have some sort of control. Like, I understand that I respect order. I respect order. And I understand that giving kids permission to go to the bathroom controlled the situation. They're less likely, likely to get in trouble. You know where they're at, that sort of thing. But to me, it's like it, it, did, it reached a, a level of cruelty because sometimes the teacher would say, no, you can't go. And how do you decide that? How do you decide that another human being doesn't deserve to go to the bathroom? How do you make that decision? And, you know, I, I have no beef with Miss Comartin, but for whatever reason, she told me I couldn't go. We were doing something. We were involved in some kind of activity, and she wanted all the kids to be involved or something. And uh, I was sitting in my chair, and I was just, I had to go so bad. I kind of have to go right now. I kind of have to go right now. So I'm really feeling this story. I'm going to recreate this story right now. But I told her I had to go. And she said no. And I asked her again, and she said no, or something to that effect, which she should have gotten the idea that, hey, I'm bursting here, lady. Um, and uh, I just peed my pants. I peed my pants. I pissed my pants. I don't, I don't like saying pee. Pee. I like saying piss. We, we say piss. It's like that bumper sticker I've talked about that said, we say Merry Christmas, meaning like we don't say Happy Holidays. We say Merry Christmas. We say piss. We don't say pee. Saying piss is like saying Merry Christmas. Saying pee is like saying Happy Holidays. And that's that analogy is more true than you probably even realize. Happy Holidays, I have to go pee. Merry Christmas, I have to go take a piss. You know, those, those are completely analogous. Analogous in the same way that Pepsi is to Burger King is to Ford, as the way that Coca-Cola is to McDonald's is to Chevrolet. You either get it or you don't. That's, that's my synesthesia. I see, the, I see how these things connect. Piss and Christmas... P and holidays. These are analogs. Um, but uh, anyway, so I, I, I really had to go. I really had to take a piss. Hey, lady, I got to take a piss. And she didn't let me. And I just went. I, I didn't try to. I just I couldn't I couldn't hold it. And 
she immediately saw and ushered me out of the room and they called my mom and my mom came and gave me a change of, she put me in a, a fresh pair of sweats. My mom put me in a fresh pair of sweats. I wore a lot of sweats during that time and she, she brought me back to school in my new pair of sweats and nobody said a word. I think most kids didn't notice. But there was definitely piss on the seat. Like, I definitely, I mean, it soaked through. But she caught me right away. To her credit, the second that she... But she only could have known because, like, she heard it or something. You know, she there, something had to have caught her attention about it. But she caught me. I remember it was, like, within seconds of pissing, she, like, got me out of my seat and sent me to the office. Which, what would they have done if they couldn't get a hold of my mom? Like, what would they have done if my mom couldn't pick me up? Do they have, like, other pairs of sweats <laughs> in, that they can put you in? They must. Like, you figure at an elementary school, they must have extra pairs of clothing in case kids piss their pants and their mom can't come. They must have a system in place. Because they had that with jackets. Like, there was one time where, like, I lied and said I didn't bring a coat. I can't remember what it, I think it was like I didn't want to go out to recess, so I didn't. And the, and then like somebody saw me in the hallway and they were like, "Why aren't you outside?" And I was like, "Uh, I didn't bring a jacket." And so they like gave me a, a jacket from the Lost and Found to wear that day, which was just weird. Uh the whole I don't know why I didn't want to go outside. Um but uh anyway, this is like a lot of childhood talk. 80 minutes so far of childhood and history and walls. Uh, but uh, anyway, like, so she changed, you know, I got to change of pants. But this is just about that kid's kindness. Because after school, that kid and I would get rides home together. My neighbor who knew everything, we would get rides home together. And so we were walking out of school and he said to me, he was like, what was that stuff? Like he, he was talking about the piss. He was like, what was that stuff that, that came out of you? It was weird. He was trying to bring it up, but in the politest way possible. And I think I said, like, oil. I think I made up a lie, a weird lie. Like, just to avoid saying I pissed my pants, I said something like, oh, it was oil. I swear to God, I said this. And he, just, he was like, huh. But I, I, I remember the politeness. Like, he was curious. Like, I pissed my pants, and he kind of wanted to address it. As we were leaving school, in, and I was wearing my fresh pair of sweatpants, he had seen me be ushered out. He knew I pissed my pants. Kids aren't stupid. It's not like this kid had brain damage and, like, didn't know what pissing your pants was. He wanted to address it because it's a big deal. It's like something you fear. You fear pissing your pants in school. And a lot of kids do it. You know, I'm not alone. But he, he wanted to address it, but he wanted to address it in a very polite way by not not acting like he knew I pissed my pants, but just like, what was that stuff you spilled on yourself? Oh, oil. <laughs> I spilled oil on myself. Where'd you get the oil? Where'd that oil come from? I, I could have said water. I could have said anything. But I said oil. I didn't even know what oil was. I didn't even know what oil was at that point. 
And like, I figured like a teacher had to have cleaned that seat. Like after she got me out, like I, there was piss on the seat. Like she had to have done, they had to have been an ordeal. Like kids had to have known something was up. Like even if they didn't see me, cause I sat next to my friend, the kid who asked me. So he knew, he knew what happened, but it, like his kindness, even though like he had to address it, he had to address the fact that I pissed my pants. Cause you have to address that. You don't act like it didn't happen. But he did it in a very kind way where he was just like, what was that stuff? Which is funny because it's like something came out of my pants. <laughs> what else could it be except piss? You know, we are too young for anything perverse to come to mind. And, it, and it's not like, yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm not even going to go there. No, I should. I came in my pants. In class, no, it's just we're too young to, for your mind to even go there, and it's like, and and if you're old enough for it to go there, you know that it wouldn't be like that, where this like clear liquid saturates your pants and gets on your seat. It's piss, man. It's piss. That's what I should have said to him when he said, "What was that stuff? What was that stuff that came out of you?" <laughs> it's called piss, man. It's called piss. You know, that's what I should have said, but instead I said oil, and he said, huh, and it never came up again. And what's interesting, though, is I, other kids in the class had to have known, too, and I wonder if the teacher made an announcement. I wonder if she said, just so you know, class, Eric pissed his pants, he pissed his pants, and I don't want any of you to make fun of him or say anything, because it happens to all of us. And in fact, it's like uh, Billy Madison or something, where he pisses his pants because the kid does. And therefore, like, everyone starts pissing their pants because he tells them it's the cool thing to do. It's almost like maybe that's what happened when my teacher uh, escorted me out of the room. Maybe she, like, came back to class and was like, Eric pissed his pants, but pissing your pants is cool. Now, maybe she used the same excuse I did. Some sort of oil came out of Eric's body. (laughs) Excuse me, class. I have an announcement to make. I don't know. Some of you may have noticed, but... When Eric was sitting there, he spontaneously manifested oil that saturated his pants in the seat on which he was sitting. I don't know. It's funny to think about. But uh, that's all I got. I I could go on forever. This has been a tangent within a tangent inside of a million other tangents. And it's it's my favorite subject, though, childhood. Still way more interesting than any adult. The kids I knew were still more interesting than any adult I've met. Those formative experiences, they were so new that they were, they were more interesting than anything I've done in life. Pissing my pants was more interesting than going to Asia. You know, uh, Jake the Snake was more interesting than uh, whoever you voted for. To this day, I stick to childhood because to me, it was far more fascinating than adulthood has been. And I love adulthood. It's not that I don't like adulthood, but just those formative experiences. It was like your mind was being blown every second. And even though in recent years, I've, I've managed to reach a point where my mind is being blown continually as an adult. Still, there's something special about the way that your mind is continually blown by every experience as a kid. So that's why I talk a lot about childhood.
This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free So take my